Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that as we look at it, that you will help us to understand it better. As we delve into the response to Paul's testimony and then into the trip to Rome by Paul, we pray that you will help us to understand and see your providence and understand you better and understand your sovereign hand, and understand that you are God. Help us, Father, to apply these truths to our lives and live in a way that honors you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Much of our culture is focused on setting and achieving goals. We are so concerned with the goals and plans of our lives, often the task becomes our culture's God. We see it everywhere. Sports, the workplace, schooling. Even Christians get so caught up in having the American dream, or at least our version of the American dream, that we forget the primary focus of being a Christ-exalting Christian. We think more like a computer than a person. We make everything about a checklist or a things-to-do list. How many of you keep up with things-to-do lists? Some of you? A few of you? If I didn't have my things-to-do list, we would be a disaster, right? <laughs> everything would be a disaster. We walk through our lives completely fixed on our human wants and desires and goals and achievements. When we are in high school, we think finishing my classes and then graduating. When we are graduating, we think get a job or go to college again. When we go to college, we think find a spouse and then graduate. When we graduate college, we think get married and get a job. When we get married, we think we have to have children now, and so on, and so on. Always planning for our retirement or whatever. By the way, for the kids in the room, you guys like playing video games for a lot of the same reason. You know that parents, you, you understand, you watch your kids, you know why they like to play it is because they like to achieve goals and have the next level they're trying to win. The next battle they're trying to accomplish and achieve great things. And I am the best at this game or whatever and have the high score, the next high score. And we look at our kids and say, why would you do something like that? And then we do it with our lives, don't we? We're very much like our kids. We're so goal-oriented, aren't we? Plans-oriented. That's our life. That's the American culture. Then when we are in our careers, we think getting that next pay raise or the next promotion. We're, we're all this way, aren't we? We are goal-focused goal people. And I want you to know having a plan or a goal is not an evil thing. The Bible doesn't say, don't do that. In fact, it says man plans his steps, but what? God directs his way. But as we will see today, goals and aims must not be our main focus. The focus needs to be on the ultimate plan maker more than our plans. Goals and plans need to take a back seat to something 
much more important. I was thinking this week about how Paul had a desire to go to Rome early on in the process. As a matter of fact, in the middle of his third missionary journey, remember, do y'all remember the passage? Look over at Acts chapter 19, verse 21. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, he's already worked with the church in Ephesus. And we get these words. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. He had what? A goal. He had a plan. Let's go to Jerusalem, and then I'll go to Rome. Well, beloved... <laughs> That was a desire, and as, if you're reading your Bible, it takes you probably about 30 minutes to get from that passage to the end of the book of Acts. But, folks, it didn't take 30 minutes. <laughs> it took years. It took days and weeks and months and years for Paul to finally get to Rome, and we're still not there. And we're making our way through Acts. The desire was in Paul's heart from... Acts chapter 19, verse 21, to see Rome. But he had a greater desire, a more important focus. As I've thought on what it took for Paul to get to Rome this week, I, I wondered, how did he avoid getting discouraged? How did he avoid saying, man, I just give up. This is too much. I think the answer to that question is, is that it wasn't, he wasn't focused on Rome. He really wasn't focused on Jerusalem. He was focused on Jesus. Whether he got there or not was not the main purpose in his life. His goals and his plans were not that being the main thing. His goal or his plan was what? To exalt Jesus Christ wherever he was. We see this in our passage, and as we make our way through, from Acts chapter 19 on to our passage. Think of everything that's happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul made it to Jerusalem, but only after an uproar in Ephesus. And then Paul did make it to Jerusalem, but only after that painful trip back around to Achaia. You know, that's where Corinth was. And he wrote First and Second Corinthians in the process. And do you understand that he had an all-out disagreement with the church in Corinth, that church plant that he had, it was miserable. It was hard. But he made it to Jerusalem eventually. Paul made it to Jerusalem, but only after the elders in Ephesus, what? Begged him not to go and cried. And then on the trip to Jerusalem, everywhere he stopped, what did they do? Don't go. Don't go. If you go, you're going to die. They kept warning him. But he finally made it to Jerusalem. Once he got to Jerusalem, what happened? It was hard. It was very difficult. He had a plan. He had a goal. But ultimately, once he got there, it was really hard. When he was in Jerusalem, he was all about sacrificing for others. We see this in 21, chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. He purified himself and sacrificially embraced the Jews in Jerusalem. But then what happens to him? He's seized in the temple for doing something that he hadn't done in chapter 21, verses 27 to 40. 
And Paul was beaten by his own kinsmen in chapter 21, verse 32. Paul gave a defense before his kinsmen in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They rejected it. And again, they sought to kill him. So he had a goal to get to Rome, but it wasn't going to be an easy way to Rome, was it? That was not the focus. That was not his main focus. Paul gave a defense in Jerusalem before the local Roman official, remember? And then there was a conspiracy to kill him, and what did he do? He was graciously taken by the Roman commander to Caesarea. The time in Jerusalem was what? Long and hard and painful. I mean, if you think about this, if he was doing some career planning, let's go to Jerusalem. And when he got there, it was a total disaster. Everyone wanted to kill him. So you'd think at this time, let's, let's change plans. <laughs> let's go somewhere else. Well, Rome was his thought, and obviously he didn't have complete control over this, did he? Because he wanted to go there, but what was happening? What was standing in the way? Everybody. Nobody wanted him to go. The Jews wanted him dead. And what? The Roman officials were using him as a what? A political football. We've got this guy and we can use him how we want to. We want to get the Jews on our side. So what did they do? There was trial after trial after trial. In fact, after he gave his defense to Felix, the Roman governor put Paul in prison and left him there for two years. Again, you can't plan this stuff out, can you? It wouldn't have been on his checklist. Let's see, spend two years in jail. Then I'll get to Rome. How many times does this happen in our own lives, ladies and gentlemen? We have all these hopes and dreams. We have these thoughts of how things are supposed to work in our life. And then, as we start to work them out, God has totally different plans and he goes in different ways and our lives are turned upside down and we, what? Become discouraged. Do we, get, do we get discouraged? Why do we get discouraged? Because our focus is on the plan instead of the plan maker. Instead of the providential God that's in control of everything. Are you changeable, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> This is convicting, isn't it? In the minor details of life, and even in our little checklist, what happens if you don't get your checklist done in a day? Some moms in the room say things like, if I could just get one thing checked off the checklist. Yes? What happens if you don't get anything checked off the checklist? Beloved, the, the idea of walking with God is not something that means independence isn't planning often a mark of what independence I can do it I'm going to be and do what I want to do when often the Christian walk is all about dependence and trusting God as he sovereignly directs our life through circumstances we wouldn't pick I'm so thankful that God doesn't only do my checklist. 
Because I'm fairly sure if he only did my checklist, my life would be miserable. Often, God has totally different plans than what we thought. So Paul sat in jail for two years. <laughs> and then was brought bet- before the new guy, Festus. Festus then brings in King Agrippa, and King Agrippa and his sister show up with all the dignitaries, and what gets to happen? Paul gets to give a gospel presentation, a clear testimony of God's grace in his life. Let me ask you, what do you think Paul's desire was? Was it only to get to Rome by this moment? I don't think so. I think the main point for Paul and his greatest desire was to exalt Jesus wherever he was, whoever he was in front of, for however long God wanted him to do it. You see it even in evidence in what he says to King Agrippa. I'll be here for a short time or a long time. Why? Because my life is really what? All about exalting Christ no matter how long it takes. And I want to see other people exalt him. If Paul was all about his destination to Rome or Jerusalem, his life would have been miserable. Most people would have marked him up as a total failure for many years. But Paul was more focused on the Lord and exalting the Lord than the goal of getting to Rome. I think all too often we get so caught up in our journeys that we fail to do what we're really supposed to do, which is enjoy our Lord along the way and exalt him. Delight ourselves where? In the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. By the way, that doesn't mean it's all about your desire because then that would turn that whole passage upside down, wouldn't it? It's delight yourself in the Lord and then what? Your desires will be his desires and he will give it to you. Wherever you are, in front of whoever you want, or in front of whoever he wants, for as long as he wants. Paul exalted Jesus before the Roman soldiers. He exalted Jesus before the Jewish elites. I was, uh, yesterday I got the opportunity to go, uh, very interesting. I got the opportunity to go deep sea fishing. And I thought, oh, great, this is going to be fun. The problem was, is I studied Acts 27 all week long. And Acts 27 was what? It's a shipwreck, folks. <laughs> and I went 50 or 20 miles out, in, out into the ocean. And so all week long, I thought about 20 miles out in the ocean, just like these guys. Checked the weather a couple of times. But it was great. It was all in the providence of God. It helped to get me going. And as the boat was going like this the whole way, I got a little bit of the queasiness in my stomach so that I could feel the full depth of what these poor guys went through in Acts 27. For 14 days, they didn't eat. And I don't think they ate because they didn't have food. It was because they were sick. They had plenty of food later on, and they threw it away. But it was good. It was a beautifully divine plan of God to have me go on that right before. But then there's those other occasions like last night when I needed to finish the sermon. And we had got back and we had all these fish and we needed to get them clean because I couldn't clean them. I don't know how to clean fish. 
And so it was pay a quarter per fish to get your fish cleaned, and that was a good deal, wasn't it? But there were so many fish, and our fish got put to the bottom. I think we were the last one to get our fish clean, or second to last. And a guy comes up to me, and he says, how are you doing? I got a joke about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I was like, oh, oh, no. And as he talked, the joke really had nothing to do with anything. And all of a sudden, he opened up and said, you know, I'm a Christian. I said, really? And he talked to me for 45 minutes, to 30 to 45 minutes. It was just neat how God took a circumstance I really wanted to be here. And God used that little circumstance for me to edify this guy and work with this guy and encourage this guy. And he tried to encourage me too, and it was good. Beloved, this is how things work. God interrupts our plans, doesn't he? He's a good God to do that. How interruptible are you? Hopefully, our plans don't trump people. And that was not intended to be a joke. What was Paul's desire? It was to witness to as many people as he could about the glory of Christ. He exalted Christ in life or in death. That was his point. And to win as many as he could to Christ so that more people would exalt Christ. That's what it's about. Getting to Rome was the destination, but the focus was more the master than the final destination. Paul accomplished this by delighting himself in the Lord. He did this by trusting in the Lord. One of our biggest problems, beloved, is as believers in Jesus, we focus way too much on the journey instead of the captain of our journey. When we are too focused on the journey, we end up getting sidetracked by the obstacles along the way. But when we're fixed on the captain of our journey, we glorify him no matter where he takes us. So, we're going to see over the next few weeks, Paul was fixed on Jesus no matter where it took him. He was all about Christ. We saw last week Paul courageously proclaimed his gospel to King Agrippa. And we will pick up here when our primary aim is on exalting the Lord Jesus, the way we are treated really doesn't matter. Notice in this, we'll see the reaction to the Apostle Paul. Let's kind of pick back up into this section and see what the reaction to his testimony was. Let's briefly trace down through this reaction. First, there was a rejection by Festus. In verse 24, it says, while Paul was saying this in the defense, in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Now, folks, if Paul was all about being appro getting approval from people, this would be a bad statement, wouldn't it? A little bit scary in light of the fact that this is the guy that could have him put to death. You're crazy. By the way, they didn't care anything in the old days about whether or about somebody had mental health issues. If you had mental health issues, you were dead. So if he was being called crazy. And Festus considered him somebody 
that was out of his mind. Why? Because Paul had said Jesus rose from the dead. He was in the grave and rose from the dead. This was crazy to Festus. Paul's words for Rome, from Romans came to mind as I was thinking on this. What is it? Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's implied by I'm not ashamed by the gospel? The gospel can what? Cause shame to the world. The world can look at this and say, you're crazy, and cause shame. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't driven by what other people thought of him. He was ultimately all about bowing to Christ Jesus and exalting him. Again, the focus of Paul is the captain, not even this obstacle. Paul was not destroyed when Festus mocked him. Again, a person's opinion of our us or our message should not derail us from fixing our eyes on Christ and trusting him no matter what the circumstances are. Now think, think for a second. How would you react? How would you react if you're at work and you start talking about Jesus and somebody says, you're out of your mind? I don't know about you, but at that point we might think, well, maybe I need to back up a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't talk about Jesus anymore with this person. Maybe, just maybe, I need to be more politically correct in this case. The fact of the matter is, though, Paul just steps right back up and says, yep, it's the sober truth. It's the fact. This is the way it is. Notice Paul's response. He says in verse 25, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. This is a bold exclamation of the king, isn't it? Paul puts words even in King Agrippa's mouth. And in, in his thoughts, he says, do you believe the prophet? And then he answers the question, what? I know you do. I know you do. So what's he do? Now think about what he just did. He just took, Festus says, you're out of your mind, right? And he turns around and says, well, the King Agrippa believes the same thing I do. <laughs> That's pretty profound, isn't it? That's somebody with a lot of courage. That's somebody that's completely fixed on Christ. His eyes are on the king. He knows he's the only way. And he has confidence. And he says, in fact, King Agrippa, I know you believe. I know you do. Now, was King Agrippa a believer in Jesus as in he had repented and believed in Jesus? I would argue probably not. By the next statement, we see that. But the facts are, Paul knew, King Agrippa knew the Old Testament. He knew the Jewish way. And he just said, hey, I know you know. I know you know the truth. And Jesus obviously fits this. Paul knew his audience. He knew King Agrippa. 
And he knew that though Festus didn't understand everything, King Agrippa did understand things better. And he didn't let one audience skew him from the course of exalting Christ. Again, this is so encouraging. Have y'all ever witnessed to two people at the same time where one person kind of seemed to get it a little bit and the other person thought you were out of your mind? Oh, I've had that happen before. And it's like, you're like, what do I do? I got to defend myself with this person and on this person I think, oh, they get it. What do we do? Well, we go after the one that gets it. That's what he did. He went right after the one that he knew. Hey, you know the truth. And he used that person to actually defend himself to a degree. Festus no, or King Agrippa knows that I'm telling the truth. He believes. He knows what I'm talking about. This is masterful, isn't it? What did Jesus tell them? He said that I will give you the words that you need when you stand before the kings. And that's exactly what was happening here. Beautiful, beautiful. Notice next Agrippa's response. In Agrippa's response, he says, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. The king obviously saw the truth and knew the truth, but the, I don't think the king bought it completely. I think he knew, look, I have to do some changing. I have to do that repentance that you were talking about. I have to turn from my old ways and trust in Christ alone. You want me to become a Christian? By the way, there wasn't a big debate there. And, and if, you're, if you'll notice that very clearly, in 27, there is belief, but it's not saving belief, if you look at 28. What do I mean by that? You can have belief, you can know something to be true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a Christian. A Christian is someone that has what? Saving belief that coincides with a heart change. A heart change that is now committed to Christ and is called a Christian. Unfortunately today we have people that call themselves Christians just because they have intellectual belief. But they haven't had a heart change. So a passage like this makes no sense to a lot of people. But it made perfect sense to Agrippa, didn't it? In a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian, become a Christian? In other words, I'm getting all this truth, but that doesn't mean I'm what? All in. Not yet. You think it's going to happen right away in this short period of time? What's Paul say? I don't care whether it's a short time or a long time. I just hope you come to Christ in a short summary. And this is where Paul gives his final pitch or plea. He says, and Paul said, I would wish to God. Now notice who's the one that brings it. I would desire to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Boy, isn't this a beautiful verse on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man look at it real closely the sovereignty of God says what I would wish to God which means what God is the one that gives this faith right that whether in a short or a long time not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am 
So it, there's a responsibility that they would repent and believe and trust. And it can take what? A short time or a long time implies what? It's when God does it, but yet we must follow him. We must repent and believe. So you ask here, you're sitting in the room and you say, well, you want me to be a, a Christian in a short time? Yes, I would say the same thing as Paul. I pray that God would grant to you repentance that you would believe. And if right now you say, I'm the sinner, will you save me? Guess what? Good possibility. God's working. Repent and believe in him and trust him. So, but in Paul's words here, Paul trusted the Lord and he proclaimed the Lord no matter the circumstance. And he longed for others to do the same. So he encouraged even this Roman governing official. Friends, everyone truly fixed on Jesus wants others to focus on him too. Right? So here, I want you to listen to me. I talked to you at the beginning. How good are you at changing directions? How good are you of having a plan and then if something comes into the way, going ahead and changing and keep going? Let me give you the overriding factor. It's the same thing that we see here in the Apostle Paul. You ready? Same exact thing. Wanting Christ exalted. That's the determining factor. Wanting Christ exalted. Okay, now what's that mean? How does that look like in y'all's life? You're at work, and somebody asks you, why do you always have a smile on your face? And you say, because Jesus Christ died for my sin and rose from the dead on the third day. You're out of your mind. <laughs> no, I'm not really out of my mind. I speak sober truth. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And he's my Lord. What did you do? You got distracted for a second. But what happened? God used that. God used that to exalt his son. And you exalted him in the process. That's the same thing with the poor mom that walks up and the kid's got a broken object in their hand. Mommy, I broke this. And it's your favorite little trinket. And you look at him and you say, oh, darling, I love you anyway. Come here. Let me see that. Oh, that was my favorite object, but it's no longer my favorite object. <laughs> I love you more. Mommy, why do you love me more than the object? Oh, let me explain. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sin, and he rose from the dead three days later. But if we say, but my plan was to have all these objects. I was trying to get them all the way across the counter. Now I'm one step back and I go, gotta go buy another object. We've missed the whole point, haven't we? It's from the smallest things to the largest things. It's all about what? Exalting Christ. Our life is about him. Paul's courage and his boldness doesn't end up guaranteeing conversion. But... It was an opportunity for him to exalt Christ. Paul was rejected, or his message at least was. 
But notice he was vindicated in the end. This is interesting. I love this. This also shows something. Somebody can be unconverted and be even convicted by a message, but they can then turn around and be kind to you. Did you hear me? How many of you, you're like, I'm a little afraid if I speak the truth to this person, they're going to be rude to me. I, I think you need to be careful of assuming the worst. If you say things in a kind and gracious way, guess what? They're going to look at you and say, man, you're really kind. You're gracious. I don't agree with you. I might even think you're out of your mind. But they still can be kind. Look what happens. The final reaction. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Oh, friends, this is neat, isn't it? What happens? They look at Paul. Number one, it appears that they do what with the message? It appears they reject it. When he said either a short time or a long time, they didn't say, take your time. <laughs> Give me some more information. I want to know more about Jesus. They didn't say that, did they? It appears that at that moment, they stand up and they exit the side. And they say, look, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He might be a little off his rocker, some of them might have said. But ultimately, what do they say? He's not worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa says, hey, we could have let this guy go free if he wouldn't appeal to Caesar. So why didn't it end up being that way? Why? You think back now. Why did he appeal to Caesar? Remember? It was when with Festus. He appealed to Caesar because why? Festus was more interested in keeping the Jews happy. And so what happens? Festus, who was really clueless, he appeals to Caesar to keep from going back to where? Jerusalem. And ultimately, this is the way that he ends up going on to Rome. He gets an all-expense-paid trip. Now, granted, as we're going to see, it was not a trip that he probably would have picked beforehand. Nobody would have picked this trip. Acts 27 is a treat. It is a trip that will be talked about forever, for a long time. It's in the Word of God, and it is an amazing trip. But what we see here is, is that Paul is ultimately vindicated as being innocent by unbelieving leaders of the Roman government. What's this say to us, folks? We've got to trust God. We've got to trust Him. He's in control of all people. Everywhere on the planet, even unbelievers. That's so encouraging to me. That means every criminal out there, every criminal is under the providential hand of God. Every governing official, even the ones that we don't agree with, are under what? The providential hand of God. And if we will just trust the king, the real king, the only true king, God will take care of us. Now you say, well, you could die. 
Yes, you could, but that would be the quick way to heaven, which would be great if you've forgotten. There's an inheritance for us there that's undefiled, will not perish, will not fade away. It's beautiful. It's great. We're with Jesus. However, as a whole, God's all about exalting himself. So guess what he does with Christians? He leaves us here. And why does he leave us here? So we will exalt him. And he even uses unbelievers like Agrippa and Festus to keep us here. Why? So we will exalt him to the world. Does God protect Christians? Let me give you a profound thought here. Yes, he does. All the time, every minute of the day? No, he doesn't, I admit. There is persecution. But as a whole, guess who's protecting you, ladies and gentlemen? God. When you drove here today, guess who was protecting you? God. He works. Way to go, God, right? Wait until you see... Acts 27, I can't wait to get into it. We're going to get into it a little bit today. It's just amazing, though, as he works through these events. He did it with the, with the Roman officials, and next he's going to do it with the journey to Rome. Turn over there. Let's look at Acts chapter 27. Let's get kind of a preview of it. So now Paul is on his way from the Jewish persecution and attention of the Roman officials to Rome. He's going to a whole new area. He's going on a journey. Now the question is, do things get easier? No. They get harder. Much harder. I think Paul would have probably picked the Caesarean jail. I'm fairly sure I'd take the two years than to take this trip to Rome with these hard-headed sailors that get us in a lot of trouble. We'll talk about this as we go. But ultimately, he starts out down here in Caesarea. They jump up to Sidon. Then they make their way along the coast. And by the way, the timing of this is most likely August, September. That's important because October brings some northeastern winds and horrible conditions. You did not sail in the winter. Once the winter started... You were crazy to get out into this area right here. You get into the Mediterranean in the winter time, you, it's bad. Many, many ships were lost right here on this coast right here. And the reason why, and we'll see it in a little while, or maybe not today, but next week. Once they come down here, they stop at this fair haven. What happens is, is they hope to slide along the coast and get up this way. But in fact, a wind comes and pushes boats down into here. So there are thousands of ships that have been lost in this area over the years. It is like tragedy area. We'll see it as we go along. The Apostle Paul, for some reason, understood some of this and says, hey, let's stop here and let's don't go any further. But the journey gets worse. So let's look at it as it, it goes out. He goes down in verse 3. He, gets, he, he has a stop in Sidon in 27.3. Then there's a new ship in verse 6 that they get on. 
in Myra, and then they make it to Crete by verse 8. Let's read this section in 27, 1 to 8. When it, had when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an admiration ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friend and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and, we put, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived on Snidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lesia. Now, at this point, you say, no big deal. That seems like a pretty gentle trip. Well, that's the best part of the whole trip. We just passed the best part. I think it's very interesting, and something for you to note. In verse 3, it states that the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. A couple of points here. One, this was about to be a really difficult trip. It was going to get really bad. It appears by the wording that Paul might have even been sick. He needed care, is what, the way the wording is here. The fact is, is that why would this Roman official allow Paul to go see some people inside him? The answer, yet another one of God's soldiers. Not literally that he was a believer, but because what? God was working to what? Prepare Paul for this trip. He was showing kindness and love to this guy. And he was getting Paul what? Ready for a long, hard trip. It's very important. You're going to go without food here for 14 days. Paul needed to be prepared. And he got care beforehand. What a good God, right? Why did he let him go? I think the reason why he let him go is real simple. Agrippa must have told this guy, and Festus must have told this guy, hey, treat this guy good. He really hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. Take care of him. So most likely, Julius took care of him. By the way, guess what changes in 27.1? Look at it real closely. When it was decided that we would sail. Who's there? Luke. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is now back with the Apostle Paul going on this trip. Hey, you think Luke knew about the story and the trip? Oh, yeah. He could write some good details, couldn't he? Because he was there along with this other guy that was mentioned from Macedonia, Aristarchus. So most likely Paul was taken care of. He had guys there to help him, and then he gets to stop at Sidon to get the refresher. 
They get on this other ship in uh, Myra, and this other ship was from Alexandria. Where is Alexandria? Down here. So ultimately it was an Egyptian ship that carried wheat, most likely, that had come up here, and it was going to make its way over there. So they get on a new ship in Myra, which is around here, and things have changed. However, this ship is not a good ship for winter uh, sailing, as we will see next week. Ultimately, folks, what do we see in this whole picture? God's providential care of his own. How does that fit with us? Does he care for us too? He's watching over us. Beloved, there might not be big fireworks today. You might not have this gigantic explosion going off. Sometimes my messages are not going to be these giant things that I'm screaming and yelling at you and getting you all fired up. But I want you to understand something. Understanding that God providentially cares for you is a very important note for your mind. It changes the way you deal with people. When you understand that he cares for you, that you have all these plans, but he directs your steps, guess what that means? When people interrupt you, you exalt Christ. When people don't allow you to go in the direction you want to go or circumstances change, you do what? You exalt Christ. When cancer shows up, when you didn't have that in your plans, you exalt Christ. When bad things happen in your way, you exalt Christ. Let's do that, right? He's worthy of our worship and exaltation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for taking care of the Apostle Paul, and ultimately taking care of us. Lord, I know that you are right now working to prepare us for things that are coming in the future, things that will be hard. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to get our minds and our hearts and our thoughts completely fixed on you. God, I pray that if there's someone here that's been trying to do everything on their own and their heart is not focused on you, I pray that you grant them repentance that their life will be about you, that they will exalt you despite their circumstances. And Lord, for us that are prone to wander, prone to stray, as the hymn writer states, we pray that you will continually draw us back to yourself. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to love him and to serve him and to exalt him in all circumstances. We love you. We commit this time to you. We ask that you use us this week for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name.